We finished the book of Matthew, and uh, we're going to start a new book. And I was praying over what book, and I was thinking, well, maybe I'll do the book of Acts, but I just did the book of Acts. I was going to tie it in with the epistles, and I thought, I did that already. I thought, I'll do the life of David, tie it in with the Psalms. Did that two years ago. One book I haven't covered, and it's interesting because through the course of the week, the Lord is, and actually more than that, the Lord's been speaking to my wife's heart and my heart, and there's more involved in that you'll see as we go along with the study. But as I, I, I perceive this book, I've never taught it in the 18 years I've been the pastor of the church here, and I've really wanted to teach it. And uh, so we are going to study the book of Isaiah. Yeah. So... If you have a Bible, open up to Isaiah chapter 1. If you don't, these folks walking down the aisles will give you a Bible. You're welcome to keep it if you don't own a Bible. Isaiah chapter 1. Second row up here, Israel. Right up here. To your left. Third, third in that row, right there. Yeah. So keep your place in Isaiah 1 and also a place in Isaiah chapter 6. And we're not going to stand yet. I want to kind of set it up a little bit as we prepare to undertake the study of Isaiah. Now, um, yesterday uh, we had a, a, a work day at the new facility. And um, it had been scheduled, but I had had something scheduled before that. And I was speaking in downtown Los Angeles at a Korean church they had a large youth event that they had planned, and there were some amazing speakers that came out, Dr. Michael Brown, Dr. William Jaynes, uh, Kevin McGarry of um, the Frederick Douglass Foundation here in California. Um, just, and, and, the, and for example, Dr. William Jaynes uh, graduated first in his class from Harvard and then got a PhD at Chicago University, top 3% of his class. Um, Dr. Michael Brown graduated from New York University, Ph.D. in uh, Near Eastern Languages. Uh, he's, a, he's a Messianic Christian, um, and he is fascinating. Uh, it's a charismatic movement. Um, Calvary chapels would consider themselves charismatic. Other charismatics would say we're not. We're kind of right in the middle. Um, and they were seriously charismatic. Um, so it was fun. Uh, but they wanted, this Korean church wanted to reach the next generation. What you typically find in an ethnic church is the next generation kind of loses the fire. And Korea has had amazing revivals, 1908, uh, right after the Korean War, there was a huge revival. Um, and here in the United States, a large population of Koreans. And so they're, they're wanting to reach this next generation has become kind of apathetic and distant. And they're losing the young people in, in uh, this, this ethnic church, especially in the charismatic movement. Strong Presbyterian presence, but... All across the board, they're losing their youth. So they put this event on, and I went and participated in it. Uh, I was the MC. I also had a chance to share. And I got there. I got there early. Um, these renowned speakers arrived. I had never had the privilege to meet them in person. And I'm, I'm really there. I'm, I'm in the midst of a book of who's who and uh, just in awe of, of their presence. And, um, and we're getting up close to the time to start, and they have sent out high-glossy flyers. They did the event in San Jose. They wanted to do one in Los Angeles. They had promoted to all these churches. The church where we were located was this big church right on Grand Avenue, downtown Los Angeles, uh, massive, uh, thousands of people attended. And um, the, the speakers had brought, you know, boxes of books, and, and as we're getting close to the time to start, there is nobody there. Goose egg. I mean, it is, it is a flop and we're looking at each other and I, I am very busy right now, very busy. And I, I was invited because when I was speaking in, um, in St. Louis at an American renewal project, the, this Korean woman, Sarah Kim and her husband, pastor Tim came up to me and said, we, we feel the Lord has told us that you're supposed to, you know, that's a charismatic line. I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> I guess I didn't have that phone. Um, but I, I'm very, uh, I'm also very sensitive to that. I, I don't take that lightly. And, and as I prayed about it, I really sensed the Lord saying, do it. And that was a long drive. Uh, we, we, we just took possession of a home we purchased yesterday. We had the church work day. And by the way, all those of you showed up. It was, I just heard it was awesome. I drove by this morning. I was blown away by what had been accomplished. In addition, there was a large group of, of LDS that came out to bless us as well. And uh, there's a testimony happening in this fellowship to, to this community. And it's so much so that 
People whose theology is different than our own is so, are so touched by what we're doing that they want to be a part of helping us. And I was really blessed by that and seeing the interaction and the encouragement. And uh, so it was, a, it was a great day, but I, I drove all the way over there in the midst of a lot going on to show up at an event where nobody's there. And as we looked at each other, just kind of wondering, what in the world? Uh, this, this one fellow said, I, I really think the Lord's calling us to pray. So we gathered together, knelt before the Lord, and it was just a profound time of prayer. And as we were praying and just pouring our heart out to the Lord, I really sensed this picture that this is an epicenter of what God wants to do in California. Because in the last nine days, I've spoken to hundreds of pastors in six counties in California. And it's, it, these events are very similar. Um, kind of a Gideon's army group, beginning in prayer, orchestrated, realizing that what California is facing is beyond any human being's ability to fix asking God for his supernatural blessing and, and just crying out to him. And we were praying. When we opened our eyes, the, the room started to fill. And so we started an hour late, prayed these folks in, and, and started to go through the process. And in it, God just ministered to my heart in so many specific ways and connected with two people in particular that are going to be in, in this pulpit in the days to come that you'll be blessed by. One is Dr. Michael Brown that I was moved by and Kevin McGarry that I was deeply moved by. And you'll get a chance to hear from them. Um, and we're also going to have uh, Fred, uh, Pastor Fred Berry. His wife's name's Wilma. They're the real-life Flintstones, Fred and Wilma. <laughs> Uh, Pastor Fred is the, the pastor of a, a very large black church in Los Angeles, and he's going to come out and share. And, and I, I was so moved by that, uh, that as, as God was speaking to me through this book of Isaiah, um, I just thought, you know what, Lord, I really sense this as a time. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a, just a brief picture, and then we're going to stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Um, we're going to look at chapters 1 and 6. Now, chapter 1 is just going to give us the introduction and then begin the vision that God gave to Isaiah. Chapter 6 is going to describe this calling on his life, how, how he got to where the Lord used him to write the book of Isaiah. Now, higher critics, these supposed theologians that know more than the average Joe, say that there wasn't just one author of the book of Isaiah, and some you know, higher, higher critics say that there are five authors. Fascinating to me that they would say that. If you, the oldest manuscript we have, the Dead Sea Scrolls, they say, the higher critics say that the, it's divided into two different authors. Uh, the first author was chapters 1 through 39, and then the second half was 40 and on, and they were two separate authors. Um, I find that fascinating because uh, the most quoted book in the New Testament, the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament, is Isaiah. And Jesus quotes out of Isaiah um, in the previous, the first half, 1 through 39, and he also quotes in the second half, and Jesus attributes both quotations to Isaiah. So these higher critics are smarter than Jesus. <laughs> I, I just don't know how to communicate or deal with somebody smarter than Jesus. I thought that would be funnier. We have an accurate account. You look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's a very clear picture. Uh, it, is, it is holy, and, and they've done through computer-generated analyzation where they say it's the same author. And So, you know, I, I think the term higher critic means high critic, like they're smoking something. Uh, <laughs> we have an accurate scripture in front of us. And, and Isaiah... We don't know a lot about him as a person. We know who his father is. Uh, we're going to know his wife. His wife is simply referred to as the prophetess. It, it doesn't mean that she is a, a prophetess. It, it means that possibly the title itself is she's the wife of a prophet, thus prophetess. I, I don't know. We won't hear any prophecies from her, uh, and that's the only title she's given. We, we don't know much about him. We do know how he died. He was cut in sunder. He was cut in half. Uh, <laughs> We'll see a picture of that depicted. And when I say we know that, it's not listed in the scriptures, but Josephus and a number of early church historians declare this. Uh, you can see Jewish historians say that Isaiah was cut in half. So, uh, and he, we're going to see the timeline of when he existed, uh, when he wrote. Uh, we're going to see contemporary prophets that have uh, books in the Old Testament that wrote the same time as Isaiah. So we're going to see all of that. Uh, but here's the cool thing. Uh, he comes to this place of writing this amazing book in the year that King Uzziah died. And then we're going to see this in chapter 6. 
King Uzziah ruled in Israel for 52 years. And, and he was a, a really good king. Uh, you had David, then you had Solomon, then the kingdom split. And you had the upper kingdom, the lower kingdom, Judah and Israel. He's over Judah. And King Uzziah, 52 years of, of ruling over Israel, he improved their military, their economic standing. He facilitated that the priests would have um, great freedom. Uh, the, the religious stature of the nation was strong. The moral conviction of the nation was strong. But towards the end of his reign, uh, he did something that wasn't really cool. He started thinking, look what I've done. I'm really proud of myself. And he thought, you know, I, I am going to step out of my civil role as a king, and I'm going to step into the religious role, and I'm going to bring the, the sacrifice to the altar. All the priests said, no, 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 you can't do that. Uh, you can't do that. And he steps into the sacred. He steps out of the civil into the sacred. And um, now you can step out of the sacred into the civil, but you can't step out of the civil into the sacred. Smell what I'm stepping in? He steps into the sacred and offers the sacrifice and the incense at the altar and gets leprosy. Leprosy. I'm not half the man I used to be. This is a song stuck in my head since youth. I can't continue until I sing it. It's the way my mind works. All my limbs are falling off of me. And you can sing that because there's nobody with leprosy in the room. It's a disease that doesn't... We did a whole study on leprosy. Remember that? Yeah. Fun. Um, so he gets leprosy, and then his son rules with him as a co-regent until he dies. And then when he dies, all hell breaks loose. And, and that's where chapter 6 begins with, in the year that King Uzziah died. And, and it, was, it was tragic. Imagine having a really, really amazing president of the United States for 52 years, where the spiritual condition of the nation is strong, economically you're strong, militarily you're strong, the nation is flourishing, your families are doing well, you have freedom to practice your faith, and, and you just see the byproduct. Righteousness exalts a nation, sin is a reproach to any people, blesses a nation whose God is the Lord. And you see this flourish for 52 years, and then all of a sudden they're off the scene, and the person coming up behind him is like, oh no. Well, this is Israel, and, and it's at that moment you know, Isaiah was born in the reign of King Uzziah. This is what he had known his entire life. And now he comes into the future as a, a minister uh, of a nation that's on the downside. And I, I feel that way personally. I can relate to Isaiah because I was born in the boomer generation, 64. I was the last year of the boomers. Uh, the great generation was behind me. They all did World War II and they, you know, they survived the the Great Depression, and they rebuilt the nation, and there was a, a spiritual, you know, fervor, went into the 50s, and then we get into the 60s, and there's affluence, and I'm born, and my parents, you know, I was the youngest, for, you know, the, when the first child's born, it's kind of like, you know, the pacifier falls on the ground, you go boil it, you know, and you're, you know, worried about, you're wiping everything down with, you know, disinfectant. By the time the last child comes around, it's like, ah, go play in traffic, you know, it's like, <laughs> And, I, you know, I grew up that no seatbelts were, you know, just crazy. Just that was my life. And, and everything was available. And, and I'm this indulging generation. And, and, and as a result, we go into the sexual revolution. And then we go into this, you know, secularism. And then we remove prayer. And we remove Bible from schools. And we, we go into this, you know, future of excitement. You're throwing off restraint. And we don't need God anymore. And, and we take down the Ten Commandments. And... And we're into this full experiment, and here we are, you know, I'm 53, 53 years into this, and uh, we're thinking, wow, what happened to our country? And, and that's Isaiah. And then the Lord calls him to go minister at that time, and I'm thinking, Lord, why did you call me to minister in California? When, you know, and, and so that's, I just got excited about the book. All right. So with that being said, let's take a look at it. Let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 1, we'll begin with. So it starts with the vision, and then we're going to see the calling in six. But this is the beginning of the vision, and we're not going to take the whole chunk of it. Oh, and by the way, our, our travel, our trip through Isaiah, we're not going to crawl through it. We're not going to walk through it. We're not going to run through it. We're not even going to ride a bike or a car. We're going to fly a plane at mock speed. So we'll get through Isaiah, but we're going So pay attention and get some oxygen. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, 
For the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not consider, alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. By the way, the word Holy One of Israel. This is, the the New Testament quotes Isaiah more than any other Old Testament book. And this term Holy One of Israel, it's used only three other times in other books in the Old Testament. Isaiah uses this term Holy One of Israel continually. He sees the Messiah. This is a messianic book. Profound. Let's move on. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. Verse 5 why should you be stricken again? You will, revolt mo- you will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faints. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They've not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence, and it is desolate as overthrown by strangers, foreigners. So the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a hut in a garden of cucumbers. I'm not sure what that means. I'll check it out later. As a besieged city, unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing with them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil from your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Learn, learn, educate, learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now let's go to Isaiah 6. And then you'll get to sit down, relax. Verse 1. Here's the calling. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim. That's an angel. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew and ran into walls because he couldn't see where... No, I just... (laughs) He had sonar like a bat. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand, having in his hand a live hot coal which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, your sin purged. And I also heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people. They keep on hearing, but do not understand. They keep on seeing, but do not perceive. They make the heart of this, make the heart of this people dull and their eyes are heavy. They shut their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return to me and they're healed. And so that's the picture. Let me pray. Lord, as we begin this journey through this remarkable living book that you've entrusted to our care, may we handle it 
with wisdom. And Lord, you lead us into all truth. So Holy Spirit, we can't do this study apart from you. And so Lord, we ask that not only would we study it correctly, but we would apply it. And Lord, I ask that you would transform our lives as we would undertake this study that would also transform our communities. And so God, please, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. I know that you've given us this book for such a time as this. And so, Lord, we ask that you'd bless us so that we would honor you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know what happened. Don't worry. Everybody's still alive. It was back in the sound booth. Somebody fell asleep. So in this uh, passage of scripture, you, you have the vision that we began with in chapter one, and then you have the calling in chapter six. And in the vision, <clears throat> what we've seen in this picture in the vision, the Lord is saying in verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? And he, he talks about this futile sacrifices and how they are going through this, this ritual of religion without any connection with the Lord. They've kind of made a, a, a system of religion that has no significance. We're created as a trichotomy, a three-part being, body, soul, and spirit. And so we, we're, we're, we're prone to worship. And some people worship their minds. Some people worship their job. But in this regard, people want to worship something higher than themselves. And, and so they, they create these, these methods of, of religion. And so we, we have different facets of worship in our communities but the idea is the Lord says, this troubles me. You're, you're missing the point. I'm your creator. You're my creature. You're accountable to me. This whole point is reconnecting. That's what religion is, relongari, to re- reconnect with God. And he's saying, what you're doing is, is an anathema to me. He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings before my eyes, verse 16. He says, cease to do evil. Learn to do good. And he says, seek justice and rebuke the oppressor. I'll tell you a term that I've gotten so nauseated with. Social justice. And I'll tell you why I'm nauseated by it. I understand why our young people grasp this and and are embracing it because they want justice. They've just been duped. There's no such thing as social justice. There's only justice. Let me explain. If you add social to justice, what you're saying is justice depends on what everyone votes for. What society deems correct. So everyone, you know, a majority wins. And so you have a moving target of, and and we're going to see some videos that our young people have to deal with in their generation. For us, don't steal, don't lie. Don't cheat. Don't commit adultery. Don't commit fornication, right? Those are clear. Those are commandments. Where do those commandments come from? God. That doesn't, that doesn't waver. That's justice. It's an absolute. But in, in situational ethics and moral relativism, justice is described as whatever everyone wants it to be. And now we're in a very confusing state of affairs. And the Lord says, I want you to seek justice, not social justice, justice. This is the point. I want you to do this. And and he he describes what has happened, that there's a problem in Israel. He says, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. We've left the Lord. We're no longer a nation that embraces. We're watching religious participation and and church attendance and a biblical vernacular. I mean, we're doing our best to bring back a biblical vernacular that there are scriptures that that are are in your heart. And and honestly, I'm not going to have you stand up and recite it, but I do want you to be honest. How many people have memorized at least one verse in the time that we've been doing verse memorization? Please raise your hand. That's good. We're getting there. I was going to say how many people have done two and then really embarrass you, but I, I grew up with that public humiliation. I was always the kid that had to sit down first. So I wasn't going to do that to you. But we've rebelled against the Lord. And, and I love what verse 3 says. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib. But my people, they don't consider. Israel doesn't know me. We, we've, we've moved away from, from accountability to a creator. Every man does what seems right in his own eyes. 
My people do not consider, alas, a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. We have killed more children in the womb than Nazi, in, in California, than Nazi Germany killed in totality. I, I share this when I travel and I speak to pastors up and down the state. Calvary Chapel, 67, started. 10,000% growth, right? But, but the nation, has, the state has gone downhill. It, this, this religion that we're practicing has no effect. God wants us to clean our iniquity. We're, we're a brood of evil doers. We're le- uh, people laden with iniquity, a sinful nation. We've forsaken the Lord. We don't engage in changing culture. We, we don't participate in these things. We, we aren't effective in regards to that. You've turned away backwards. We've gone backwards. And the whole head is sick and the heart faints. And all of this was given to Isaiah in the midst of this vision. And, and, he, and, and the Lord is saying to him, I want you to return to me and I want my people to return to me. And as he cries out and he says, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away evil from your doings before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, and rebuke the oppressor. And as he says this, Isaiah's life is profoundly touched. He wrote all these things down, and this vision is going to go through this entirety of the book, and it's going to really bless us. We're going to see pictures of Christ in this, some of the most profound messianic prophecies, especially the back half of Isaiah, is phenomenal. Where did all this come from? Well, it came from Isaiah 6 in the year that King Uzziah died. And we we saw this. Here is kind of a timeline, and I know it's hard to read, so I'm going to walk you through it. Right here, this purple. This is from 7, what is that, 740? 740 AD to 680 AD. This purple section here is when Isaiah lived, right there. That's his timeline. Yeah, I meant BC. Thank you. It's been a long week. So critical. <laughs> Rightfully so, though. Uh, yeah, this is, <clears throat> this is Isaiah's life right here. And so you can see contemporary prophets. You have Hosea right there. And he's prophesying to the second kingdom. See, what happened is you had David, who was the king, came after Saul. Then Solomon, his son. And during Solomon, the kingdom split. It went the northern kingdom, Israel, southern kingdom, Judah, and these prophets to Israel, the northern kingdom, are all listed here, Elisha, Elijah, uh, Jonah. And then you have Hosea right there. So he's contemporary with Isaiah. And then down here, the, this is the kings of Judah. And here you have uh, Uzziah. And, and uh, along with that comes the, uh, the, his son Jotham when his dad gets co-regent. His dad gets leprosy, so Jotham rules here. And this is where Isaiah begins his ministry in the year the king Uzziah died. It begins here. He goes through Ahaz, Hezekiah, and then it goes to Manasseh, who's just a nightmare. Uh, Ammon, and then uh, you have Josiah, and with him becomes uh, a revival. But then they go into captivity in Babylon. But up here, the northern kingdom is taken away into captivity, and the southern kingdom would as well. But from this lineage will come the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And that's why... Isaiah is used with these messianic prophecies that you're going to see in his writings. Uh, here he is. This is Isaiah. And these are the kings um, that, that existed on the face of the earth during this time of the northern and southern kingdom. So that's kind of your picture. Uh, some of the contemporary prophets I already pointed out to you. Uh, Hosea right here. But you also had Micah and you have Obed right here. And these are contemporary prophets with Isaiah. Their writings in the book are all about the same time. Now, I read to you uh, the passage of Scripture, but this is one of the things that the Lord says. He says, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And the Lord uses this comment. He says, let us reason together. Now, you had Thomas Aquinas, you had Augustine in the early part of church history, and they used this type of reason called inductive reasoning, where they began with a premise and everything was based on in, inductive reasoning, looking at the premise that already existed. These are known facts and we base everything on this, but that inductive reasoning required that they had faith. And here's the faith uh, with Augustine and with Aquinas and others of the early church history. The first verse of the Bible, for example, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So they counted that as fact, right? You got that? 
So based on that fact, they induced everything else in relation to that. They use deductive reasoning, but for the most part, they induce that this is a given. This is an absolute. We take it by faith and we're moving forward with everything else based on that understanding that there's a God, we're his creature, and, and this is the word of God. And we operate in that context. Now, that's good. And, and it was very successful in the early church. And they also, through Socrates and Aristotle and Plato, they applied some of these concepts of deductive reasoning as well. But then you went into what they called the Dark Ages when Islam moved into Europe. They started to come into Greece. These monks that had been educated in that capacity went over to Italy and you had what they called the uh, Renaissance. And, and then they had the Age of Reason that came around the 14th, 15th century. And this Age of Reason is where they returned back to deductive reasoning. And they started to deduce so what they did is they, they, you know, two plus two is four, and then you have to have a test on that and you use a scientific method and you, you know, everything is tested by that and you want to deduce that this is a constant and that's how you come up with these, these understandings. So inductive and deductive reasoning combined, similar to what you have in uh, the Old Testament when it says, let us make man in our image. It was the term for God was Elohim, which is in, in Hebrew, singular plura- plurality or unified diversity. So diverse realms of thought, sociology, anthropology, right? With a unified purpose of glorifying God. So they would have deductive reasoning included with inductive reasoning, and it would glorify the Lord. And we would come to understand his creation through that. So deductive reasoning helps faith and faith helps deductive reasoning because you have a foundation of truth, right? Now, If you remove deductive reasoning and just do inductive reasoning, you end up, as the church did in the early portions of of history, that the earth is flat. Uh, You end up with this idea that the earth is the center of the universe. And then along comes Copernicus, right? And, And Galileo. And the church dismisses them because they're committed to inductive reasoning. And they've taken it so far that they haven't used deductive reasoning to combine with it. And so they, they, you know, alienate these folks that love the Lord, but are using deductive reasoning. And so Copernicus and Galileo are dismissed. Well, in this age of reason, the two come together and it's a fascinating concept that travels through the Western hemisphere and gives us this form of government that's phenomenal. You can, you can look at uh, Spinoza and you can look at John Locke and how these folks in the age of reason developed this constitutional republic and what we ended up with. It was just amazing how it all came together. And so here you have this picture. And, and the Lord is saying really clearly here, come let us reason together. And oftentimes I'll, I'll take that out of context where the Lord says, come let us reason together with deductive reasoning. But he also wants us to have this deductive reasoning to realize something very significant. We're sinners. There is no utopian government where we're all going to get along. Socialism has been tried and it's failed. Communism has been tried and it's failed. Fascism has been tried and it's failed. And, and I can't take from you and give to you and we're all equal because you'll stop producing and you'll be waiting for a handout and we're all selfish and we're going to, you see how that works now with inductive reasoning, if there is a God, which there is and the 10 commandments are the law of God, then socialism would be a violation of thou shall not steal and thou shall not covet. So those two come together. Am I boring anyone? Or are you tracking me? You're like, So come let us reason together. We're sinners and our sins are like scarlet, but they'll be as white as snow. Those are like they're red, like crimson. They shall be as wool. I'm going to cleanse you. There's a hope for your future. <clears throat> come to me. All you are burdened, heavy laden. I have a plan for your life. I have a direction for your life. You're going to be a new creature in Christ. The, the old will pass and new will come. We, we, you don't have to be in this cesspool. I've got a whole future for you. All you got to do is acknowledge and embrace me. and I'll take it from here. And this is what he's giving to Isaiah because Isaiah, remember the vision, Isaiah is, is desperate. He's watched this nation that has flourished for 52 years going down the tubes. And, and here's the vision. Hey, Isaiah, with your physical eyes, it seems like the world's gone to hell in a handbag, but I got news for you. God is still on the throne and that settles his heart and, and restores his vision. You see, it's not what it is. It's what the, what you perceive it to be, per, per, your perception. I'll give you an example. And and I'll do it in modern day vernacular because it used to be described as traveling on a train. I'll do it traveling on a plane. A man is on a plane. It's uh, the two outside seats, the four inside seats. If you've ever been one of those wide body planes and he has a ticket and he likes an aisle seat 
So he sits down the aisle seat in the middle section. Next to him, uh, a woman with her two children. He doesn't know them. They're assigned to that seat, and they sit down. Now everyone on the plane thinks it's husband and wife, two kids. He doesn't know them, doesn't care about them. He just wants to get home. The two kids are absolute brats. They're running amok on the plane, disturbing the, the stewards, and they're just knocking stuff over, and they're screaming, and they're pushing each other. And the mother's sitting there like she doesn't have a clue or give a rip. And everyone's looking at him like, get a hold of your kids. I mean, come on, man. And he's like, shavers. And he's kind of giving her the stink eye like, and she is oblivious, doesn't care. Kids running amok. Finally, everyone keeps looking as these kids are out of control. And he's finally had enough of being accused of something he's not responsible for. So he turns to the woman and he says, lady, get a hold of your kids. They're disrupting the plane and the passengers. I'm embarrassed. And she says, I'm sorry, what? Well, that irritates him. He's like, I told you, get a hold of your kids. They're out of control. Everybody on the plane has been disrupted by them and you're not doing anything. And she starts to cry. And she says, I'm so sorry. My husband died and we're taking his body back to bury him and I've just not been myself. And she says, kids, come sit down. They sit down. What's happened? His perception's changed. He sees it for what it is. Now he has compassion instead of judgment. Right? We're living in a world where we see this and God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. You need a new perspective. And so when you see the Lord high and lifted up, it doesn't matter what the, 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 the vision is with our eyes. When we see it through the eyes of God, it's totally different. And this is what he says. He says, look, this is a sin issue. I want to get the nation right. He says, if you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. And, and, and Isaiah saw this and he realized for, the, for this nation to be strengthened, we've got to return to the Lord. There's got to be a conviction to return to the Lord. Now, Isaiah, I'll tell you what, when you're a prophet of the Lord, you have a really tough life. Uh, we find out not through the scriptures, but through church history. And this was listed by Josephus, a number, number of Jewish historians, also referred to by the early church fathers, that this is how he died. He was cut asunder. And there's other depictions of how he was cut asunder. They actually, some of the depictions are so graphic that he's reversed. He's not standing. He's upside down. And you can see that. Ew. And, and, and this is, and, and I look at that and I think to myself, I remember one pastor sharing, he had blindness in his eye and he'd lost the lower lobe of his lung. And he was just saying, you know, God, I knew you were going to take me and I don't count my life dear to myself. But I didn't think you, you were going to take me piece by piece. You know, he said, God, why are you, why did you do this to me? And, and the Lord spoke to him, and he finally came to this conclusion. He thought, you know, and he shared this with the pastors. He said, when I get to heaven, and if I got this, you know, issue with the Lord, why? Why, God? I'm going through such a difficult time. You just, where are you? Why would you do this to me? You know, and you hold on to that, and you get to heaven, and there's Peter, and you're like, I got questions for God. Oh, you're one of those. Yes. That's over here in this room. It's Isaiah's room. You walk in, Isaiah's beside himself. <laughs> what's your problem? Yeah, what's your problem? Paul, who's been beheaded, is holding his head in his hand. What's your problem? And you're like, nah. Just. I don't count my life dear to myself. And this idea, what Isaiah did to turn a nation and to prepare, make straight the way of the Lord was a life wholly committed to wanting people to see what God wants to do to, in, in, in a wayward people to set them straight. And it comes at a cost. And one of the things I'm so blessed by is I've, you know, last nine days spoken to hundreds of pastors in five or six different counties is all that's left in California is what I call Gideon's army. Anyone who's spineless has moved to Texas. <laughs> Yeehaw. Those that remain look at this state and go, only a miracle could save this state. And, and what happened yesterday is that's exactly what we decided. These, these brilliant people gathered and got on our knees and began to pray. And we realized this was the epicenter of what God wants to do. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and heal their land. And we began to cry out. 
My heart was so moved, and I'm watching pastors with the same concept. Lord, unless you build this temple, we are wasting our time. And, and here's the thing. No longer can you fix the state with your gimmicks. You know, a, a high glossy and bringing a cool band doesn't fill a room anymore. That's over. And whatever we've been doing church-wise isn't doing anything in California. We've been doing this for 51 years with Calvary Chapel, and the state is imploded. This doesn't do it anymore. It's a transformation of the hearts of God's people broken before him. And, 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 and the picture that you see in relation to it, this is, this is intense. In the, king, the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting, sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. And you see this picture. He gets a vision of God that, that gives him a brand new perspective. Folks, sometimes I think we forget who we're serving and what we're called to. We, we give him lip service. We go through the motions. But this is for real. And it's so intense to him that we, the, the, the angels cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The posts of the doors were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. The house was filled with smoke. You get a vision like that of God, you're undone. When Peter saw the Lord, it was revealed. He says, depart from me. I'm a man of unclean lips. You see, J. Edwin Orr, the, the foremost historian of revival throughout the world, who, who, you know, he had three doctorates, and he said, everywhere that I have, I have covered revival, the description of revival is judgment day. Everyone comes face to face with who they are in the sight of a holy God, and they deal with their life first. And you're just thinking, you know what, God, if anything's going to change, it's got to begin with me. You've got to break me. I've been going through motions. I've been playing games. You're, you're a segment. You're not everything to me. And this vision of God changes the whole perspective to the point where Isaiah says, when he sees this picture of God, woe is me for I am undone. I, I, I'm just, I am undone before you, God. What, what a mess. I'm, imagine, we've said this, imagine in front of everybody that, that videotape of our, our secret thoughts and our secret actions revealed. You're like, I am so ashamed. I am complicit. I'm apathetic. God, I go to church, but I am not who people think I am. That honest reality, that, that clear perception of who you are in the sight of God. I am bitter. I'm unforgiving. I'm judgmental. I'm awful. Lord, you're so good. I'm so lazy. Lord, help me. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I remember one time I said to the Lord, it was comforting and shocking all at the same time. I was in the midst of just miserable internal turmoil of just wretchedness. And I said to the Lord, God, if, if, if this is what I'm dealing with, I can't imagine what they're dealing with as though somehow I'm better. And the Lord says, oh, no, no, you're the worst. <laughs> I'm like, oh. and he showed me, he takes the foolish things of the world to confound the wisdom of the wise. He takes the weak. He put me here and he just said, Rob, the good news is they're not as bad as you. <laughs> the bad news is they're bad. And what you're feeling needs to result in repentance for you and all of them. And I got it. We're not going anywhere until we're on our knees broken. And it results in this. And then we see our sin and our eyes are open to the reality. And the, and the honest perception is established as we see through the eyes of God. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And this is a result. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it. And he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is purged. He comes up and he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cleanse you. And he comes up and he has this just burning hot coal. And he puts it on his lips. And, and here's, here's a picture of it, an old picture of it. So we all know that we don't want to see that videotape of our lives, but 
Here's the interesting thing. God's not coming to you and saying, I'm going to put a scorching hot coal on your lips to cleanse you. No, no, what he's saying to you is, if you believe in your heart and confess with your tongue, Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. You're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The wages of sin is death, but Christ has paid the the wages in his death on that cross. He took the hot coal so you didn't have to. All you need to do is receive that gift by faith. Sometimes people do raise their hands. Sometimes a church calls you to the altar. Sometimes it's a prayer in the midst of a group of people. Sometimes it's just a personal ascent to accept that with the Lord and your life changes. But you come to a realization that you've been cleansed. Past, present, and future sins have been wiped off the slate, forgetting what is behind, striving for what is ahead. What are you striving for? It's exactly what Isaiah strove for when he said, I also heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? And the response to a transformed life is, God, I'm here. I want to go and tell everyone what I just received. You're not trying to earn God's favor. You've received it and you want to go and give it. You know that you've been transformed. You know you've been cleansed. You know that that hot coal has seared your soul and blessed you and cleansed you because the byproduct is not a have to, it's a get to. And all of a sudden, it's no longer just raising your hand. It's going forward like Isaiah, that you go into a stubborn and stiff-necked world and you proclaim the gospel and declare that righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. These issues need to be addressed. We can't kill our babies anymore. There isn't social justice. There's justice. We're created equal. That is a violation of thou shall not steal and thou shall not covet. We contend in culture for the truth and the vernacular of God's word has has pierced our heart and we proclaim it. We're his mouthpiece now because our lips have been touched by that coal of transformation. I I say all this because Isaiah, when he wrote it, his nation was in a, a spiraling downturn. Isaiah was dead. They had walked away from the things of God. They were stepping into a, a progressive secular mindset. The, the civic had invaded the, the, the sacred. The civic was now telling the sacred what to do. Sound familiar? Anyone heard of SB 2943? SB 2943, excuse me, AB 2943, an assembly bill. Uh, yeah. Dr. Nicolosi, come on up here. Come on up. I just saw him. I got to do this. He testified before the assembly, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, Let's welcome Dr. Nicolosi. He has no idea what I'm doing right now. No idea. SB 2940 or AB 2943. This, this, this doctor has been called of the Lord. If you, if you have been molested, uh, let's say you're a young boy, you've been molested by uh, an older man and you're under the age of 18, and you don't want that same-sex attraction because it's messed with your head, and you go for counseling. This is a man that God has used. What is the success rate you've had with same-sex attraction as, as you've addressed it? Um, if they stay longer than about five sessions, about 50% see a decrease in their same-sex attractions, and their 50%, they say they meet their therapeutic goals, their same-sex attractions are essentially gone, and they're in love with a woman. That's pretty much the success rate, yeah. Yeah. AB 2943, again? No. That's the assembly calling. They say, don't you dare say what you're about to say. AB 2943 will outlaw what he does. He'll be in jail. Here's how it works. If someone comes to him, he can only give them the outcome they want to pay for. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Explain it. Yeah. So, I mean, right now clients get to choose their therapeutic goals. Um, that's always been the way it's been in, in psychotherapy. But now for the first time, if this bill passes, the government is in the driver's seat. The client doesn't get to choose their own therapeutic goals, even with their own sexuality. Um, you know, as a licensed clinical psychologist, my job is to meet people where they're at, affirm them in their journey, and help them achieve their goals. But now for the first time, if an individual says, look, I have unwanted same-sex attractions, 
or someone says, I'm, I'm dealing with transgenderism, I'm only allowed to affirm them basically toward heterosexuality, not toward heterosexuality. If a person says, I was sexually abused, I, I was sexually abused by an older man as a child, and now as a result of this, I, I struggle with these, with these uh, desires, I have to only help this individual in the way that the government says I can help them. Um, it's really remarkable, and it's, it's really a tidal wave um, where they're pushing this law through, and it's going to affect this church. Um, there are, if we have a bookstore and the book talks about um, leaving homosexuality, you can't sell that book. You can't sell the book. You can look it up, AB 2943. They are, they're, they are, they're rushing this bill through, and the mainstream media is not even wanting to touch it. They're pushing it through as quickly as possible, um, and um, if, it, if it goes into effect, we're going to file a lawsuit immediately. But It's a uh, violation of the First Amendment. Absolutely. Absolutely. Ironically, it's a violation of the 14th Amendment, yes. the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause, which is what the LGBT movement has been, has been using. They've been saying, wait a second, if you're a florist or you're baking a cake, you can't, you can't just serve one kind of wedding and not another. The Equal Protection Clause means you have, to do, you have to serve everybody, even if it's against your conscience. Well, now they are compelling me to violate the 14th Amendment because I have to turn away people based on their sexual orientation. If a man comes to me and says... You know, I'm, I'm dealing with pornography addiction. I have to have the absurd conversation of saying, is the pornography addiction toward males or toward females? Because if it's toward males, I can't help you. That's what they're doing. Well, I'm done with my sermon. <laughs> Amen. God bless you. Let me pray for Joey. Lord, we thank you for Dr. Nicolosi, and we thank you for just his, his faithfulness to contend for the culture as the culture is wanting to cut him in half. And yet, Lord, he is faithful. So, Lord, strengthen him, bless him, protect him. And we pray victory as he stands in the gap on behalf of those that long to be set free, that they would know the truth and the truth would set them free. So we ask your covering and your protection, your blessing, your courage upon him. In Jesus' name, amen. Bless you, man. All right, I got to run through this real quick. So um, here my send me. Now, here's what's happened in America the year the King Uzziah died. So we had a really, the, the greatest generation, things are going good. Then the boomers come on. We're overindulged. We're given everything we want. Uh, if you give to a child when it cries or a pig when it oinks, you end up with a fine pig and a rotten child. I'm that generation. They gave me everything I wanted. And so we start kind of indulging ourselves. And the next thing you know, we want to move away from God because who's anyone to tell us what to do? Uh, we're entitled and so in 1963, we take uh, prayer out of the school. Supreme Court 8 to 1 prohibits Lord's Prayer. Bible reading is public school requirements. And as we remove prayer from schools and we remove the Bible from schools and absolutes, uh, now we're on a slippery slope of moral relativism and uh, situational ethics. And what happens when we remove prayer from schools, you see incarceration rates go through the roof. Okay? 1963, and it goes straight uphill. Homicide rate, take prayer out of schools, goes through the roof. Birth rates for unwed girls, 15 to 19, prayers removed from schools. Let's just see how our kids are being educated because the Bible says fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So we take prayer and Bible out of schools. How do our kids re respond? SAT scores plummet. Angle versus Vital, removal of prayer from school. Murray versus Curtell, removal of Bible reading in school. Removal of religious instru instruction from school. Unconstitutional for a student to pray aloud in school. Removal of Ten Commandments from schools. It used to be this, right? Now, we're, we're in a realm where we're very confused. And the Bible says that sin brings confusion. And who's the author of confusion? Satan. Tell me what's not clear about this first chapter. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Two genders. Facebook, there's over 90. Just ask Dr. Nicolosi what he's dealing with. And let me just share with you, because we have transgender, we have you know, folks struggling with same sex. We got all that in the church. I'm not here to judge that. What I will say is, 63, we saw the social barometers, everything's chaos. Every one of us has grown up and has experienced pornography. We've all experienced divorce. We're all warped. We've all been hit with it. 
The younger you are, the more you've been smacked. I was waiting for a hearty amen. Amen. So we've all got our issues. No one has them more than me. That makes you feel better. Probably true. And, And with that, before the Lord, we're allowing him to change us. Lord, I want your perspective. I want the coal on my lips. Change me. Help me, God. Yeah, listen, we, we want to do sexual identity. Okay, I'm, I'm, I am a monogamous lesbian trapped in a man's body. <laughs> Got that, okay. We, we, we all have our issues. And, and whatever you're struggling with, it's, your sin isn't greater than mine, Okay. The church for a long time has, has liked to level sins and, and we, we like to be very prejudiced towards specific sins. Let's put that aside and let's all put ourselves before the hot coal of the Lord. We're all affected. Regardless of what we feel, the reality is there's male and female. That is the, the genetic DNA now, in our mind, we're all, but the Bible says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And, and we want to suppress the truth with a lie, so we have to shut guys like Dr. Nicolosi up. And we have two options. We either, we either stifle the truth and imprison the people to confusion, or we stand for it. We may be cut in half, but we set the captives free, right? So... I want to show you this video is by Dr. Michael Brown. This video now is going to get him in trouble if AB 2943 gets through. Uh, this is one of the men that spoke at the last conference. This is the world of confusion in moral relativism, removing the absolutes and Genesis 127 and declaring that to be true, abandoning it and suppressing the truth of the lie. This is the road we take. Put on your seatbelts. Show that video. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. If perception is substituted for reality, there is no end to the social madness that follows. You do not just have a man being named woman of the year. You do not just have a white woman who identifies as black. You have a father of seven who identifies as a six-year-old girl. You have a man who identifies as a dog named Boomer. You have a young lady who believes she's a cat trapped in a woman's body. You have a man who has his ears removed because he identifies as a parrot. And you have a man who changed his identity to female, but who has now had, quote, her ears and nose removed to transform into a dragon lady with scales, a forked tongue, and a horned skull. But why not? More power to him, her, it. If that's what he, she, it perceives himself, herself, itself to be, Why not? As reported by the Daily Mail, Eva Tiamat Medusa, 55, from Maricopa County, Arizona, was born a man named Richard Hernandez, now lives as a woman and has undergone extensive surgery. Her mythical beast transformation includes a full-face tattoo and horns. The tragedy is that this is not a laughing matter. Take a moment and check out Medusa's pictures, not just the utterly bizarre current shots, but an earlier one where we see bearded, smiling Richard Hernandez proudly holding his son Marcos. One can only wonder what Marcos thinks of his dad today. Medusa explains, I am the dragon lady, a pre-op male-to-female transgender in the process of morphing into a human dragon becoming a reptoid as I shed my human skin and my physical appearance and my life as a whole, leaving my humanness behind, adding that her most natural self-awareness is as a mythical beast. Richard Eva Medusa actually has a large Facebook following. But regardless of popularity or notoriety, he, she, it reminds us of the terrible danger of mistaking perception for reality, especially when the rest of the world is supposed to accept that perception as reality. The hard, cold facts are that there is no more evidence that Richard is a woman than there is that Richard is a dragon. Or to bring in the case of Bruce Caitlyn Jenner, 
there is no more evidence that Richard is a dragon than there is that Bruce is a woman, or Rachel Dolezal is black, or the Catwoman is a cat, or the Parrot Man is a parrot. People like this deserve our pity and prayers. To celebrate them is to do them a terrible disservice. Now listen, especially the younger you are, the more that that's a little bit offensive in the sense that this is the indoctrination. We've been down this road and, and we've removed it, but we're looking at it saying, well, what, what is the course? That's, that's the reality. However you, you fall in relation to it, you have to, this is what the Bible says. It's either true or it isn't. And what course is this going to take us on and how far do we have to go with it? And the confusion, especially with the younger generation, is intense. Last video and I'll let you go home. Let's show it. There's been a lot of talk about identity lately, but how far does it go? And is it possible to be wrong? We went to the University of Washington to find out. Are you aware of the debate happening in Washington State around um, the ability to access bathrooms, locker rooms, spas based on gender identity and gender expression? I I think people should be able to have access to the facility. I think uh, bathrooms could and potentially should be gender neutral because there doesn't need to be a classification for differences. I think people definitely should have the ability to go into whichever locker room they want. Uh, I feel like at least public universities should do their best to accommodate for those who do not have a specific uh, gender identity. You know, whether you identify as male or female and whether your sex at birth is matching to that, you should be able to utilize the resources. So if I told you that I was a woman, what would your response be? Good for you. Okay. Like, (laughs) yeah. Nice to meet you. I'll be like, what? (laughs) Really? I don't have a problem with it. I'd ask you how you came to that conclusion. If I told you that I was Chinese, what would your response be? I mean, I might be a little surprised, but I'd say, good for you. Like, yeah, be who you are. (laughs) I would maybe think you had some Chinese ancestor. I would ask you how you similarly came to that conclusion and why you came to that conclusion. Um, I would have a lot of questions just because on the outside, I would assume that you're a white man. If I told you that I was seven years old, what would your response be? Um, I wouldn't believe that immediately. Uh, I probably wouldn't believe it, but I mean, I it wouldn't really bother me that much to go out my way and tell you no, you're wrong. I'd just be like, oh, okay, he wants to say he's seven years old. If you feel seven at heart, then, <laughs> then so be it. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> so if I wanted to enroll in a first grade class, do you think I should be allowed to? Uh, probably not, I guess. I mean, unless you haven't completed first grade up to this point and for some reason need to do that now. If that's where you feel like mentally you should be, then I feel like there are communities that would accept you for that. I would say so long as you're not hindering society and you're not causing harm to other people, I feel like that should be an okay thing. If I told you I'm six feet, five inches, what would you say? That I would question. Why? <laughs> because you're not. <laughs> no, I don't think you're six foot five. If you truly believed you're six five, I don't think it's harmful. I think it's fine if you believe that. It doesn't matter to me if you think you're taller than you are. <laughs> so you'd be willing to tell me I'm wrong? I wouldn't tell you you're wrong. No, but I say that um, I don't think that you are. I feel like that's not my place as like another human to say someone is wrong or to draw lines or boundaries. No, I mean, I wouldn't just go like, oh, you're wrong. Like, that's wrong to believe in it. Because, I mean, again, it doesn't really bother me what you want to think about your height or anything. So I can be a Chinese woman. You... <laughs> um, sure. But I can't be a six foot five Chinese woman. Yes. If you thoroughly debated me or explained why you felt that you were six foot five, uh, I feel like I would be very open to saying that you are six foot five, or Chinese, or a woman. It shouldn't be hard to tell a five nine white guy that he's not a six foot five Chinese woman, but clearly it is. Why? What does that say about our culture? And what does that say about our ability to answer the questions that actually are difficult? All right, I'll, I'll leave you with this because we got to get rolling. Um, Did you notice the one word that kept being, I feel? 
So what's been re- removed is deductive reasoning. The young man I did like, if, if, if I can deduce it, if I can, you know, I'll debate it and I'll, I'll analyze it. He did use deductive reasoning. But what's happened is the colleges have removed deductive reasoning and they've only used inductive reasoning. And the inductive reasoning is that there is no truth. So, so you would say this is my perceived truth and your perceived truth. That's true for you, but it's not true for me. There's not your truth and there's not my truth. There's truth. If we don't start saying that, this is what your kids are learning at the highest levels. So this march through Isaiah is to inspire and equip us to make a difference.